Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Carly Jade Morse was born on May 19, 1994. At 16, she was living with her family in an apartment in the 7,000 block of West Bonnie, near the corner of Warren and Benoit in Westland, Michigan, and was just weeks away from starting her freshman year at John Glenn High School. On August 20, 2010, between midnight and 1 a.m., with her mother's permission, she walked outside to talk on her phone, barefoot, and wearing only her pajamas. Her mother had no way of knowing this was a horrible decision and she would never see her daughter again. When her mother woke up over an hour later, she realized that Carly had never come back inside. Panicked, her mother contacted the police, who initially thought she might have run away, but her mother knew that wasn't the case and knew her daughter was likely in danger. Over the next four months, a vigorous search ensued to locate Carly. Soon, police began contacting friends of Carly's to question them, seeking answers. They also tried to contact her most recent love interest, Justin Yoshikawa, who strangely went out of state right after Carly went missing. Two months after her disappearance, the investigator was contacted by Justin. He said he hadn't talked to Carly and informed the investigator that his ex-girlfriend was a drug dealer. At that point, the investigator had already learned of drug paraphernalia and a record in her bedroom of marijuana purchases and sales she'd made. Justin said he would help the investigator get the names of those that Carly mingled with in the drug trade. Her mother assumed that the authorities weren't doing anything to try and find her daughter because of what they had learned about her. But that wasn't the case. They had been following leads and tips and were making progress in the investigation. Meanwhile, another young girl from Westland who had been trying to find her way in life went to speak with a therapist. Before one of those weekly therapy sessions, the young girl mentioned to her mother that she wanted to get something serious off her chest to the therapist. Her boyfriend at the time had told her that he and another young man had gotten revenge on a girl because she was stealing money from the trio's drug-dealing operation. She thought they were bragging and lying, especially her boyfriend Nicholas, because she knew he was a habitual liar who liked to exaggerate. Meanwhile, the two men claiming to have done these horrible things took off for several weeks out of state, but only Nicholas returned. He continued telling her more and more about what they had done and said the victim's name was Carly and described the apartment she had lived in. He said that Justin, 
had made him remove his large speakers from his car and replace them with clothes and various items for him to hide under. He said that Justin gave him a CD and told him when a particular song came on, he would come out from under the clothes and strangle Carly. All Nicholas had to do was talk her into getting into his car for a ride to smoke a blunt. When he did, they drove to a park, got out, smoked, and got back in the car, and that's when she was attacked. She fought hard, and it took both men to control Carly, who was only five feet tall and less than 100 pounds. At one point, Nicholas's girlfriend was present when he mentioned to his mother that he had done something really bad. He told at least two different versions of where they discarded her body. Nicholas said he couldn't remember because at the time, he was high and upset at what had just happened. He once told her that they drove to a random park and buried her body. He then told her they put her in a bag and dropped her into a landfill. He then said to her that they took her body back to Nicholas's house because there were power tools that Justin could use on her body before discarding it in trash bags. They destroyed her phone afterward as well. Eventually, she started to believe her boyfriend's stories. Finally, she told him she didn't want to hear anymore and that it was too disturbing and she couldn't handle it. She even told him she felt she needed to talk to a therapist and he begged her never to tell anyone. Justin's new girlfriend and Nicholas's girlfriend saw a Facebook page dedicated to finding a teenage girl named Carly who disappeared from her apartment complex in August the same apartments where the men said their victim lived. These stories, or confessions, led her to confide in her mother four months after Carly went missing. Her mother went to the police and provided them with this information. Mother and daughter were soon in a room with two detectives. One important detail was that she and her boyfriend's mother were the only people who knew the two men went out of state after Carly's disappearance. They went to Alabama and stayed with Justin's family. While there, Justin checked himself into a psych hospital where he remained for a couple of weeks and that's why Nicholas returned without him. While at the police station, Nicholas was constantly messaging and calling her because he knew she was thinking of going to the police. One of the voicemails was outrageous and wasn't from Nicholas but his mother instead, saying that if she went to the police to turn her son in, she was turning herself in too because she helped him and she would be considered an accessory. In other words, Tina Lowe knew about the murder and tried to intimidate and threaten the girlfriend not to go to the police. Also, not only did Tina buy her criminal son a house, but she did so after he asked her for some money to start the process of drug dealing. She gave him $500 to get him started. He gave part of it to Carly to purchase weed. They bought some, sold it, and profited, but Carly didn't share the profits, making them both angry. Then, in December 2010, four months after Carly went missing, the two men were arrested. But Big Bad murdering Justin fainted twice before the police could even get him to the squad car. Justin quickly confessed to the murder and said he and Nicholas decided to kill her because she cheated them out of drug money, and Justin was still angry from her punching him just a few days before his high school graduation, forcing him to wear sunglasses to hide the shiner during the ceremony. At that point, Carly was finishing the 8th grade when Justin graduated high school. 
He said after the murder, they drove to Nicholas's house and pulled the car into the garage so no one would see them remove her body from the front seat to the trunk. The next morning, they put her body in a black trash bag. They then drove around for a while looking for a place to leave her. In a remote area, they came across a red brick church, pulled up, and placed the bag in the church's dumpster about an hour or two south of Westland, but couldn't remember where the church was or the name of the church. He said he thought Justin planned to kill Carly's mother and that he had killed other people. He said he had wanted to go to the police with his information before, but didn't because he was afraid he would be murdered instead. In Nicholas's garage, the police collected pruning shears that contained hair and a bucket that contained hair. They also took his car along with all of his electronics. He told police that he only participated because he was afraid of Justin and said that Justin threatened to harm his girlfriend if he didn't cooperate. He said that Justin desecrated Carly's body before putting it in the garbage bag and dumping the remains at the church, maybe near Monroe, Michigan. They weren't familiar with the area and even had to use GPS to navigate back home. Therefore, neither of them could tell the police which church's dumpster they threw her in like trash. The two men, at one point, rode separately with the officers trying to find the church but were unsuccessful. Investigators believed they were purposely not on the same page about where they dumped her remains. The authorities extensively searched a vast area trying to recover her remains. If they knew which church's dumpster had been used, they could determine which section of the vast landfill to explore. Without that information, finding her in the landfill would be nearly impossible. Pictures of almost a hundred churches were shown to the suspects, but they could not say for certain which one they were at. 22-year-old Nicholas Cottrell and 19-year-old Justin Oshikawa were both charged with first-degree murder, carrying a life sentence in prison without parole. Nicholas's mother, Tina Lowe, was charged with being an accessory after the fact, a misdemeanor. Investigators stated she knew about the murder, failed to inform the police, and interfered with the investigation. She agreed to a plea deal that they would drop the accessory after the fact charge if she pleaded guilty to interfering with the police investigation. She got two years probation and was ordered to pay over $700 in court costs. In January 2011, Nicholas struck a deal with prosecutors and agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder and testify against Justin for a sentence of 25 to 50 years in prison. During Justin's trial, Nicholas took the stand but reneged on his plea agreement and refused to testify after finding out that someone else had done something similar and got fewer years, so his plea wasn't fair. He also said his guilty plea had been coerced and he wanted to withdraw it. The judge allowed the transcript of Nicholas's previous testimony to be read to the jury. Before the reading was finished, Justin pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and admitted Nicholas's statements about the crime were all true. He was sentenced to 35 to 50 years in prison. A Facebook page was created for Carly named Find Carly Morse, but it appears there has been no activity for the past 10 years. As of December 2022, Carly's body has tragically never been recovered.
At the age of 52, Karen Vanessa Young lived in Detroit, Michigan, along with her boyfriend, 50-year-old Randall Childs. Karen had worked at Detroit's Parks and Recreation Department before being laid off. Randall was employed as a dishwasher at Royal Oak at Pasquale's Restaurant and had also gotten laid off when the restaurant shut down and also acted as a neighborhood handyman for those who needed help. He was a member at St. Mark's Kojic, the father to four children, and attended Northern High School in Detroit where he played baseball and was a member of the choir. Less information is available about Karen, but their loved ones say they would have never left without telling them. If they had, they would have let someone know right away. The couple did not own a vehicle, and no one knows how they left the area. On June 7, 2011, the couple was at Randall's apartment at 3901 Grand River Avenue near Rosa Parks. Unfortunately, it is not clear what happened on this fateful day, but in the lead-up to them going missing, Randall and his girlfriend, Karen, were in his apartment with his roommate and other friends. Karen and Randall reportedly got into an argument, and Karen decided to leave, so she called a family member to come pick her up at around 11.30 p.m. Some reports say she called her only daughter, Leisha Young, to pick her up, but other reports state she made arrangements for her mother and a friend to pick her up. Nevertheless, she left the apartment to go downstairs to wait for her ride, but Randall decided to walk her out because they were on the sixth floor and it was dark outside. Shockingly, the two vanished at that point and have never been seen again. Both their families have spent the last decade searching for answers. Karen left her purse and all her belongings behind. Randall's sister, Sharon Murray, said that somebody has to know something. She said everywhere she goes, she's always looking for her brother. Since their disappearance, Randall's family have submitted DNA to be matched against unidentified remains and have regularly visited hospitals and morgues, doing everything they can to try and find him. They have posted flyers and frantically searched the area, but no firm tips have come forward. As of December 2022, both Karen and Randall remain missing, and their case remains unsolved. Jessica Jean Phelps was born on December 22, 1992, and went by Jesse. At age four, Jesse lived in the 1600 block of Maryland Avenue on the east side of Flint, Michigan. On July 1, 1997, four-year-old Jessie went to McDonald's with her mother, Tamara Kinney, and her younger brother, Jordan. When they returned, Jessie ate and watched TV as Tamara got into the shower. They lived in a busy neighborhood where children were always running from one yard to the next to play with each other. It's believed that Jessie went outside to play while her mother was in the shower. When her mother got out of the shower, she couldn't find Jessie. So, with the help of neighborhood friends, she began searching for her, but could not find any signs of Jessie. She then reported her daughter missing. Hundreds of volunteers assisted in the search and helped put up flyers around the area the next morning. In addition, volunteers brought horses and dogs to search along Kearsley Creek and Flint River. Police even lowered part of the Flint River, but never found her body. Nine months later, on April 2, 1998, a Genesee County road worker excavating a stretch of road 
Horton Road in Atlas Township uncovered her skeletal remains 20 miles from home. Pieces of clothing found next to the remains resembled Jessie's. Her remains were identified by dental records two days later. However, because Jessie's remains were exposed to the elements for a long period, the hope of any real DNA or forensic clues was low, according to officials with the Flint Police Department. Police suspected she died the day she disappeared, and it's believed she was killed by asphyxiation. Her older cousin Angie has been relentlessly keeping her little cousin's face and story out there with hopes that someone who may have seen something or knows something will hopefully give Jesse justice, but as of November 2022, this case remains unsolved. At the age of 24, Erin Rebecca Taylor lived alone in a small rental home at 1741 Wright Street in Marquette, Michigan. She was originally from Madison, Wisconsin, and was described as an empathetic, nice, very likable, and beautiful friend and talented violin player. She worked as a temporary clerk at the Upper Peninsula Medical Center in Marquette. She was last seen by co-workers leaving work at 5 p.m. on Friday, August 11, 2000. Aaron had met a man online from Canada and had plans to meet up with him in person in Munising, Michigan. Erin didn't have a car, and it's unclear how she planned to get to the hotel. After midnight, Erin left a voice message on her friend's answering machine, saying she was still looking forward to meeting with the man. Her close friend, Bonnie Dowd, was expecting a call from Erin to tell her about her date, but as the weekend came and went, she never heard from her. She never returned to work on Monday, and her friend Bonnie still couldn't get in touch with her. Finally, she stopped at Erin's home to find the window open and her beloved Siamese cat inside without any food or water, which she said Erin would never do. With no family in the area, her friend Bonnie reported her missing on August 15th. According to Bonnie, Erin was estranged from her parents because they were Jehovah's Witnesses, and she wasn't, and they didn't see eye to eye. Bonnie had met Erin at a women's shelter in Wisconsin, and the pair became close friends and soon moved to Marquette and lived together at one point. Meanwhile, when Erin visited her parents, she wasn't allowed to come inside and had to speak to them through the screen door because she didn't practice their religion. After a while, Erin missed her family and wanted to return to their good graces, so she began attending a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. As for the male friend, he said that Aaron never showed up at the hotel in Munising as planned. No other information is known about the man other than he didn't live in the area and was planning to stay the night at the hotel where he and Aaron were supposed to meet. He claimed he didn't end up staying there because there were no available rooms. He said he drove to Marquette to look for her but couldn't find her, so he returned home to Windsor, Ontario. Nine days after she went missing, on August 20, 2000, a Marquette County Sheriff deputy responded to a complaint of off-road vehicles making noise. When he arrived, he sadly stumbled upon some discarded bedding containing the remains of Aaron. This location is about 100 yards north of County Road 492, several feet off Snowmobile Trail 8 in Nguani Township. Using dental records, they were able to positively identify the body as Aaron. 
it's speculated that her killer likely placed the call requesting an officer to handle noisy off-road vehicles because he wanted her body to be found. The autopsy revealed Erin had been strangled to death and her body was dumped with the ligature still around her neck. They determined she was killed inside her home and then transported because she was strangled with her own scarf and wrapped in a blanket she had hanging on her wall. The necklace she always wore was found in pieces behind her bed. She was likely moved to the woods to conceal evidence and to give the murderer time to clean up the crime scene. The man from Ontario passed a polygraph exam and his every move from Ontario to Marquette was accounted for, ruling him out as her killer. According to Bonnie, the person of interest is now deceased and Bonnie is convinced this individual killed her best friend. As I was nearly done researching this case, I came across a web sleuther that posted the following. Erin was murdered by an old man who she first lived with when she moved to Marquette. This old man became infatuated, and when Erin moved out and started dating, this old man tried to stop her. He went to her house and strangled her. He panicked and or didn't know what to do, so he drove home and got his wife. Together, they drove back to Erin's house and wrapped her in a floor rug, got her in their truck, and dumped her body where it was eventually found. This old man has never even had a parking ticket. He will never be charged and will never do time. It's very sad for Aaron's family and friends. Such a shame. I will not reveal this old man's name, but he is the person law enforcement suspected early on, and it was his home they searched. Aaron's violin was passed down to Bonnie's granddaughter. Bonnie is hoping that someone will come forward with more details so her friend's case can be closed. But as of November 2022, this case remains unsolved. Jeannie Singleton was born the fourth of six children to Dorothy and Steve Singleton in 1946. At the age of eight, she lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and was a second grader at Woodward School. Jeannie loved everyone and was said to be a very friendly and trusting girl. She walked with a limp brought on by a bout with rheumatic fever at age four that left her right leg shorter than her left. Nevertheless, she would approach strangers and talk to them like she'd known them all her life and had a smile for everybody. After school on May 23, 1955, Jeannie called up with nine-year-old Bob Holderbaum to show him her new multicolored shoes. As the two walked to the corner of Douglas Avenue and Blakeslee Street, Bob continued north to his house and Jeannie turned west onto Blakeslee towards hers, which was only a tenth of a mile away. On her way home from school, she would often stop to talk to neighbors. She would chat it up with the firefighters at the station on Douglas Avenue, and if someone moved into the neighborhood, she was the first to meet them. Her parents tried to warn her about strangers, but Jeannie loved talking to people. Jeannie was spotted resting her legs not too far from her home at 1310 Blakesley Street, but Jeannie never arrived. When she hadn't shown up by early evening, her mother called the police, and soon the search was on for a little girl wearing a pink plaid dress, white socks, and multicolored sandals. Jeannie's disappearance prompted what, at the time, was the largest organized search ever in the Kalamazoo area. 
Every local police agency, Michigan State Police, the Civil Air Patrol, Michigan National Guard, and U.S. Naval Reserves were involved. Between 800 and 1,000 people participated, including locals who were given time off work to help. They scoured fields and streams, and police rounded up known sexual deviants and questioned them. The search for her involved hundreds of people in a motorcade that attempted to search every road in Kalamazoo County. Steve Singleton, acting on a tip, twice searched an abandoned building in Cutlerville near Grand Rapids. Police joined him the second time, but found nothing. The search for Jeannie spanned eight days. The searchers included Western Michigan University students, youth groups, workers from several companies that were voluntarily shut down to assist in the search, and troops from multiple military branches, one of the biggest searches in Kalamazoo history. On day 9, June 1, 1955, five children were playing hide-and-seek at their favorite spot when they stumbled upon something horrific in the woods. On a pine-covered hill about 15 miles north of Kalamazoo, the group of kids made the horrific discovery of Jeannie's body. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death, and appeared to have been there for the entire nine days she'd been missing. A dirt road led to the secluded spot where Jeannie's body was found in southeastern Allegan County. Police concluded that only someone familiar with the area would have known about this spot. It was also known as a lover's lane. Police found faint footprints believed to have been left by a man and a child leading to where Jeannie was found, and the larger prints could be seen heading back the other way. As it turned out, Steve Singleton had been searching about a mile from there that day. Acting on a psychic's tip, he had been driving between Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids almost every day, trying to find his daughter. Unfortunately, evidence was mishandled and remains missing to this day. After Jeannie was found, they zeroed in on Stanley B. Edgerton, a 29-year-old electrician from Kalamazoo. Edgerton voluntarily went to the police after a sketch of a possible suspect was released, which he believed resembled him. It was drawn with the help of a 14-year-old girl who told police the man twice had tried to pick her up the day Jeannie disappeared. Edgerton admitted to trying to pick up the girl and, in 1955, was convicted of accosting a minor. He was put on probation, fined, and ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment. According to public records, Edgerton was not charged and died in 2014 in Arizona at age 88. In 1973, police also investigated another suspect, who had died in 1962. The man had a lengthy history of sexual violence, and his wife had gone to the police because she believed he was responsible for killing Jeannie. The woman told police her husband had driven with her to the Pine Grove near Doster on the day Jeannie's body was found, and in subsequent years would drive by the Singleton's house on Blakesley. She also said her husband sexually assaulted her in 1959 in the same spot in the Pine Grove where Jeannie's body was found. As with Edgerton, though, police never had enough evidence for an arrest. Phil Bassett, who has lived on Blakesley Street since 1989, bought the lot at 1310 Blakesley in 1994 and for several years maintained a memorial for Jeannie that included a cross. 
Jeannie's father, passed away in 1984, and her mother died in 2007, never seeing justice for their daughter's murder. Although police interviewed more than a thousand people, no arrests have been made, and as of November 2022, this 67-year-old case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.